Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Diana, and today I'm joined with returning guest, Fan. Hi everyone. And Tope. Hey there. And new guest, Michelle. Hello. So today we're going to talk about the movie The Five Bloods by Spike Lee. I guess it's a Vietnam War movie, right? So it's about Black American vets who in like 2018 or something, they returned to Vietnam nominally to take the remains of their compatriot who died in Vietnam back to the U.S., but they're actually there for gold. We want to discuss the problems that we had with the movie and also what these problems or just, you know, the fact that it was made now represents in terms of race and geopolitics. I think it's basically there were four vets and then one of the vets' sons surprised them and uh, joined their mission. So sometimes it's referring to the Five Bloods with their fallen soldier played by Chadwick Boseman and then the four men. It's weird how they switch with the characters in their current ages back into flashback scenes. Yeah, that seems to be kind of a theme that people have been doing lately. Like in Pen15, they also have 30-year-olds playing middle schoolers. <laughs> but I mean, it makes sense in a comedic element, right? But if it's like a serious movie with v- like like literal Vietnam flashbacks, does it make sense to have that still? Yeah, that really caught me off guard when I was watching. I was like, wait a second, what era are we in? I wasn't sure it was a flashback at first until I saw them do it a few times, and then I finally got it. So it's basically four elderly gentlemen and and one uh, young man, and then they meet up with a French woman at a bar, and then the story travels with them and uh, two guys that she's working with. So mostly the Vietnamese characters are kind of side characters, but the main action is with these uh, black men and these three white people. And the movie didn't really get good uh, reviews from the general audience, did it? I've seen a lot of people like it. A lot of non-Vietnamese people like it. I don't think it's getting like rave reviews, but I do see a lot of people talk about how they thought it was a very meaningful exploration of the Vietnam-American War experience by showing it from a Black perspective. I think it's pretty mixed as far as reviews out there. Yeah, I did learn a lot of great history from it. Uh, it was something like black soldiers were a third of those sent over there when the black population is nowhere near 33% during the war in America. Yeah, I read like 25% of the dead from Vietnam were black soldiers, but the black population at the time was only like 11% or 15%. Yeah, that's something I definitely didn't learn in textbooks or growing up in public school. So that that was interesting to see that side because all the you know Vietnam War movies before focused on white soldiers, and um, you know if there were black soldiers, they were you know just small characters. Right, and I think highlighting that black perspective was really important. But for me, I felt it did it really superficially. Like it still centered the American perspective, and that's something I just really despise in war movies. That just made the movie very flawed for me. And I, I think I would have been okay if Vietnamese characters were more sidelined if it did a really good job of exploring that black perspective. But because it was so flawed, I found all those other things very distracting. What do you mean by flawed? Like what specifically really bothered you? I love the idea of a movie that calls out the exploitation of Black Americans under an imperial state that didn't and today still doesn't recognize them as equal. Those statistics that we saw about how they were overrepresented in the deaths and and the forces that were sent to Vietnam, that's important to show. And especially in the montage at the beginning that included Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Angela Davis, you know, those were all civil rights leaders who really emphasized, you know, that point of how Black Americans were fighting this war for this imperial power. But then the movie didn't really make the connection between that domestic oppression and international forms of oppression that were a big part of those anti-war movements. And I was really disappointed how it didn't explore that at all or didn't really bring that to light. Like, I I thought it was really clumsy how it did it. I got the impression that the movie talked about the Black experience at the beginning and at the end. It just kind of like 
bookended a very general American narrative. Because like at the beginning, you have that montage. And at the end, they're talking about donating some of the money to Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. But then most of the movie is just like the same as any... It's very bland. It's very much the same as any other like heist movie. And I think realizing that the script was actually written by two white guys and it was originally about white Vietnam vets. I think that made me realize why it was so weird and so problematic. It's not a black story. It's just a white story with a black face superimposed on it. Yeah, there was that insertion um, <clears throat> when they had Muhammad Ali about, I think there was a quote, he said that there were no Vietnamese people who ever oppressed him, but that he felt more oppressed by white America. However, you get the character of Paul, you know, still saying gook and, you know, just being terrible to the Vietnamese who he runs into there. So that was kind of a, a strange eye opener for me. We had the, the black Republican and he had a MAGA hat on. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something that, uh, bothered you guys a lot about the film specifically all of the slurs and just like the negative treatment or just dismissal of Vietnamese characters throughout just a disclaimer uh I didn't watch the movie but I mean I I learned about the film through Viet Thanh Nguyen's critique of it or review of it and yeah I read I read about the parts where the black soldiers or the vets use racial slurs and that their justification one of them said that if we're allowed to use the worst racial slur for Blacks, we should be allowed to use it for everyone else. And that didn't really make any sense. And just my general impression of the movie from reading his response of it was that it wasn't very, it was like a very superficial representation, uh, representation of Black people without really delving into the racism that gets, you know, played out in America and how how Black people actually are actually um, perpetuating the racism towards other Asians, which I find that I've had an issue with that. um, And I've been thinking about it a lot with the demonstrations going on. Like, I think about that too, you know, I think about how if a third of the armed forces who were deployed to Vietnam were black, yes, they were being exploited, but also they were also participating in the war crimes that happened. So even from a historical perspective, it's like they were perpetrating a lot of anti-Asian violence and hatred. Like, what do you what do you do with that? Yeah, I have a spoiler alert, but uh, again, the main character, Paul, his whole guilt throughout the movie and for all of his decades since he was a soldier in Vietnam is that he accidentally killed Norm, who uh, was their fallen soldier, um, because there was a you know Vietnamese woman uh, charging at them. And to shoot her, he also shot one of their friends. So again, that's another typical portrayal of a woman with a machine gun, a Vietnamese woman, just like in you know previous Vietnam War movies. So that was nothing new there. And it seemed like all the Vietnamese characters were still very othered. Like um, there's a scene in one of the final showdowns where there are some Vietnamese men who come and try to stop the black men from taking the gold. And one of the Vietnamese men is talking about um, one of the massacres and he was blaming it, you know, these American GIs. And there was a whole scuffle about that. Yeah, you bringing up the Vietnamese woman soldier, they showed her towards the beginning of the movie too, like with her rifle. And, you know, it's just like the Vietnamese woman sniper and full metal jacket. And exactly. There, there's so many tropes in this movie. It just seems really lazy. The movie lacked so much depth. When I read about the movie, I thought it was supposed to subvert the American Vietnam War movie standard. And it did so in such a shallow manner by literally imposing Black characters onto a story that was written for, that, that was a white story originally. And the depiction of Vietnam and Vietnamese people definitely lacked a lot of depth. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people talk online about the chicken cellar scene. I felt like it was written like in a really overdramatic way that portrayed this Vietnamese cellar as really greedy and vengeful when in reality... I don't think that would have really happened. Plus, the concept is strange to me anyway. Why would a Vietnamese seller try to sell a live chicken to an American tourist? Did they think Paul was going to butcher and defeather and clean a live chicken? That just heightened the sense of like drama and chaos in the scene just for the sake of it. And when I read through the script, I noticed there weren't actually any lines for that chicken seller. And I don't know if that was something that's added later, or if it was just ad-libbed. But again, it just shows how the Vietnamese characters are just a side thought. 
Yeah, that scene didn't quite uh, come together for me. And I know when they're talking about the enemy, you know, they're very sadistic. But then when it comes down to Vietnamese women that these GIs are coupled with, you know, we get the one older Vietnamese woman character and then her daughter, who turns out to be, you know, Otis's illegitimate daughter, who's half black and half Vietnamese. We still get them as kind of just barely relevant. And then there's your usual Vietnamese bar girls in a, in a bar scene that are hanging out with Paul. Yeah, there's no real sense that they were real actual people. They just are conveniently placed and caricatured. You know, same with the, the beggar boy in the first bar scene and then the older Vietnamese men too. They seem very stereotypical and that didn't really help any kind of plight. Even the way that those uh, Ving's uncles in the bar scene, how they were dressed, it seemed like they were dressed like a caricature. Yeah, like with a, a Fu Manchu or something. Like, yeah, like their, their facial hair, their flowing, flowing kind of robe-like garment. Yeah, that was a little bizarre. And what was the bar called? Apocalypse Now or something? That's that's actually a real bar. Yeah, I've, I've read that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, the, the scene dancing through the bar was probably my favorite scene in the movie. Did anyone like any other scenes? Did any of them pop out and make sense? I remember enjoying some moments and like finding them funny. But Diana was talking about how this is essentially just a heist movie. And like in that context, the movie was kind of enjoyable. Like if it was just a heist movie. Right, it was the same as like any action movie. It's, right, you know, yeah. These guys versus these other supposed bad guys, and there's a gunfight, and we lose right. some people, and you know, there's this bad guy <laughs> who was French, so that was okay. <laughs> but that that's another trope too, right? The evil French guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, and like there was an evil French guy, but it, there was no acknowledgement of them being colonizers. There was a little in in the other bar scene when David meets Edie. Like she talks about that some. This is the white savior woman that I don't know why is in this movie. Yeah, so it's like they talk about it, but then the action is still a lot of white saviorness and this French woman woke bay, and so it's like exactly. it's like you're literally just giving lip service and especially in the context of why she was there as part of this organization removing unexploded ordinances there are vietnamese organizations that do that there are vietnamese people who do that work i thought it was very pointless to make this random french woman and her white colleagues to be the organization in the movie instead of possibly showing the vietnamese organization that was doing this so it seemed like she was there mainly as an excuse to have the good french character to explain why the bad guy french character is actually the main bad guy but like why do you even need a good french character you don't <laughs> yeah you don't. like in a regular heist movie you wouldn't need a good french character <laughs> like so what's the point of having one here yeah it was strange it was like you know how in a lot of movies the white woman character deserves protection instead of you know women of color like this french woman first she flirted with david and then she was the bad guy and she's like she would never do him anyways she was just trying to get away from him and then in the end she's the good guy again she's on his side i I didn't get the point of her whole arc why we needed to wonder about her why she was there in the first place I think it was almost just to like contrast with the bad guy French characters. So like if the bad French are the main bad is like the main bad guy as some sort of representation of the sins of French colonization, then we can focus on that and we don't need to further examine <laughs> the United States role in all of this. <laughs> right. Yes. So it's bizarre French influence still on a, a movie about, you know, the American war in Vietnam. So it's the yeah. recolonizing cinema <laughs> that takes place in Vietnam. It's, it is bizarre because the only, you know, main Vietnamese woman character we get is the older woman who, you know, was Otis's lover because, you know, Veronica Ngo gets like five minutes. So again, like the Vietnamese women just feel kind of inserted. So a French woman got more screen time than a Vietnamese woman? In a film about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's still not okay, you know, because we, we haven't had any English language movies about Vietnamese women that have been prominent for decades. So this is like, you know, the, the one chance. So it's a missed opportunity. Her whole role felt extremely tropey. The ex-lover who surprises him with a kid when he returns to Vietnam. That's almost like a retelling of the Miss Saigon story. Only instead of having his you know, American wife here with him and her her killing herself. She's actually doing quite well. The guy's wife 
is dead and he comes back to to get back together with her which i don't know if it's better necessarily i think it's a little presumptuous that she would want to get back together with him i think it's presumptuous for him to just you know insert himself into her life now and just like expect her to like actually want that and welcome him back like oh 40 years have gone by you had this whole ass other marriage and other kid and now we're just we're just gonna do vietnam now and like you you just it's like so presumptuous to think you just waltz out and then waltz back in into her life suddenly and it made me feel like it was just like a like a revamp of the whole miss saigon story in this way that is like representative of the shifting attitudes of like Americans versus um, Vietnam as a rising economic power and it kind of reminds me of the stories of these vets that actually like are living in Ho Chi Minh City now because they get better health care benefits than they would if they stayed in the U.S. Yeah, that is pretty wild. And you can definitely tell that men wrote this story and men wrote this Vietnamese woman (laughs) character who was just okay with her lover leaving her knocked up. And then, you know, and then again, she's like totally open arms again. That doesn't really make sense, but okay. Right. It's it's very similar to the expectation of like him in Miss Saigon just like killing herself and telling this white woman that she's never met that stole her man. Here, have my kid. Just take my kid with you. It's like such a gross perspective. It's such a male perspective. And it just shows like this gross ass Western entitlement. Right, that, uh, you know, Asian and Vietnamese women will just be open arms for you no matter what, forever, Mm -hmm. for decades. Yeah, and I feel like it's a kind of a symbol of the Western mentality, of that, like, colonial mentality of just, like, everything in Vietnam, or, like, everything in the East is here for you. It's here as an object for you to just take whatever you want, whenever you want, you know, like, here's this gold. It's not really yours, but like, it's there. So you take it, you know, you leave this bitch whenever you want, come back whenever you want. She's there for you. And uh, once you, once you're back, like you all, they they always get the kid, you know, they Mm -hmm. always get this kid who like, if, if it was me, I would be pissed that my dad fucking left for 40 years and had a whole ass other family. Like, it's so fucking presumptuous for them to just, like, have this relationship heal overnight and everything's just okay. Like, he just gets to bounce and then have a family and then bounce and then have this whole ass other family. What a fucking presumptuous colonial fantasy. Yeah, the Michonne character at the end, too, she was just like, yeah, he's my dad. And there was no questioning. Again, you could tell it was written by American men. You know, not that much thought went into these female characters. Yeah. I mean, so like the the writing, okay, it's like presumptuous and bullshit. But then I kind of expected more from Spike Lee because his stuff in the past was very good. It's very good on race. It tells like the black experience, especially the black male experience really, really well. So for him to just be so lazy, not do any of the work that he's done in previous movies, it, it was very disappointing. Yeah, I think with um, a lot of filmmakers who have quote unquote made it or been around for a long time that people are not that apt to criticize them or criticize them in the pre-production or writing process because there were Vietnamese you know, consultants and people involved in this film who saw the script and I wish they had spoken up more. So they did have consultants? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, who are these people and why didn't they say anything? Yeah, were they public about their feelings about the film or their feelings about the production of the film? Yeah, I saw, you know, some posts where they were very rah, rah, rah about when the film was going on. But then when criticism and bad reviews came out, they, you know, backtracked a little bit. and were like, oh, okay, well, (laughs) it was kind of too late. Yikes. Well, okay, there's there's a side of these guys who are writing this film. They're going to do their thing. They're going to have their blind spots. But they so they actually had consultants who are Vietnamese who were what do they do? Like what are they there for? They just like kind of keeled over and were just like, "Yeah, do whatever you want." They were just there as a hall pass basically. I I just want to know like is it them or is it that the writing team or the production team chose not to listen to some people 
people and like only employed, you know, yes men or something like that. Yeah, you never know. Is uh, you know, it seems like it was a husband and wife white producing team, and then uh, Spike and I, yeah, I think that the key producers, none of them were Vietnamese or Vietnamese American. But yeah, I think they wanted the Vietnamese actors in the film to heavily promote it. But you know, there was an article that came out about people who are watching this film uh, in Vietnam by uh, Soraya Kishwari, and yeah, she said that the reviews from Vietnam were not good. Well, yeah, because it's the same movie that they've seen over and over again, redone in a superficial right. way. Yeah, even way. though America's the losers in the war, America's gotten to write the history where the, the U.S. is winning. Yeah. That makes me remember, like, it, it's a very subtle thing, but it's, you know, the scene in Saigon in the beginning when, um, you know, they had just come back and there's the McDonald's in the background and Eddie makes this dig at how Vietnam, basically implying that Vietnam lost in the end because there's the presence of these corporate fast food chains. I thought it was such an unfunny, unoriginal joke. It's such a cheap joke that I see stupid American tourists make that joke on Twitter all the time. Like that's how insipid that joke is. And there's so much left unsaid when you like make a joke like that and let it stand uncritically. You know, Vietnam's lands were destroyed. You know, they were fucked up by bombing and agent orange and they only mention agent orange primarily in the context of causing cancer in paul when the main effect of agent orange was on the vietnamese and their lands like farmlands destroyed you know after the u.s withdrew and vietnam was almost immediately pulled into another war in cambodia ultimately resulting in you know this crippling embargo by a u.s that was basically seeking revenge vietnam couldn't rebuild and sustain itself had few countries that were willing to trade with them and so ultimately needed financial assistance and to eliminate some of those trade barriers, had to agree to terms from the World Bank and the IMF to acquire financial assistance and loans. Those institutions are very pro-capitalist and exist to basically exploit countries and extract wealth and impose these rules that minimize government spending on healthcare and education. So yes, you end up getting McDonald's in Vietnam, this joke that somehow Vietnam is, has lost to capitalism in the end. It's just trying to survive to build the society of its ideals. Yeah, it's a very sour grapes kind of joke. <laughs> right, yeah. I want to know more about the reviews from people in Vietnam because a lot has happened in the world, you know, like after the 2008 financial crisis in the US, like before that, there was a lot of, there was more prestige in Vietnam about the West and Westerners and Western remittances. But now there's more investment from Asia, like, you know, South Korea or Taiwan or Japan and China. And Vietnam isn't the country that it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I know that in China, the attitudes have seriously shifted in the last 10 years about the U.S. You know, there's a lot more national pride. And I think that goes hand in hand with just everybody's standard of living increasing and just um, everybody doing much better in in a in a quali- qualitative way, but also relative to Western powers. And I feel like if you're a American company and you're making an American film about Vietnam and you're telling the same jokes and you're telling the same stories from the 70s and 80s in 2020. Like, it's just, it's not going to play the same way. It's like a comedian telling the same routine for 40 years. Yeah, I I can't remember who said this, but um, someone said Vietnam is not a war, it's a country. So in Americans' minds, Vietnam is, you know, some land from decades ago, you know, with these poor villagers who got bombed and they don't, you know, realize how things have changed and now how Vietnam is like a prime vacation spot for everyone. Like so many Americans have been back and a lot of Asian interests have come to build there and we've had the Anthony Bourdain episode and how much he loves Vietnam and, you know, people like Don Johnson have built there. So yeah, the quality of life and the youth culture has gone up so much. There's a stat that something like 60% of the Vietnamese population is under the age of 30. I'm pretty sure that's it. I might be wrong. But yeah, there's so much more to the country then and now instead of just thinking about it as a war-torn place full of disadvantaged people. I don't know if that number is is exactly right, but it is something around there. Because of the history, millions of people were killed. It is a, a very young country. I've also seen the same quote about how Vietnam is not a war, it's a country. And that's another thing 
that makes me think of like in the beginning montages where it interspersed images of black civil rights leaders and then images of atrocities that occurred during the Vietnam American War. I know that's important history, but it still seems pretty gratuitous because those are images people already know. And a lot of time it's the only thing that Americans know about Vietnamese people. And definitely one thing I noticed during that montage was they showed the photo of Anti Kim Phu and the other children running away, and the caption was Napalm Bombing of Children. On the other hand, they did caption the names for uh, Nguyen Van Lin and uh, Thich Quang Duc, photos by name. And we know the children's names in the photos, but people just know the girl as Napalm Girl. I could give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're just trying not to name children, but the North Vietnamese radio broadcaster was just captioned as Hanoi Hanna, but she has an actual name, Jin Thi Ngong. So again, like this is a rep- repetition of this is all America knows about Vietnam. And it's keeping that way, you know, as, as caricatures and stereotypes, because we still don't have any films coming down the pike that represent history the way it actually was, or Vietnam the way it actually is. You know, they brought up like uh, My Lai and things like that. And yeah, just typical textbook stuff that we you know we've seen through documentaries and all the content that we're fed about Vietnam our whole lives growing up in the US. Again, I think comes back to our conclusion, it was just so lazy. Exactly. Even with all that money and, you know, any help that they could get, you know, it still turned out that way. So it was disappointing. I feel like this sort of thing actually hurts Americans more because they have no idea what Vietnam or Vietnamese people are like. But Vietnam and Vietnamese people know exactly what the U.S. is like. And they're a rising economic power and the U.S. is declining so if they're just stuck in this, the same, you know, three reels of war footage, that's going to reflect poorly on them. And the opinions of actual Vietnamese people are increasing in importance globally. So it's just, it's just not going to play well for the U.S. Yeah, the average American is extremely ignorant about Vietnam and the rest of the world is, is smart to invest there. And, you know, Vietnam handled coronavirus a lot better than the U.S. did. There's just a lot of know-how in Vietnam that Americans are neglecting to research. Like, they're not going to be able to develop there in 20 years because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. They don't know how to do business with Vietnamese people because all they know is fucking napalm girl. Yeah, that's a huge disadvantage for America. I mean, you know, look at our leadership and just the, you know, erroneous ways of, of thinking about the country and the Vietnamese people. I just have like a comment about Vietnam being a rising power. I'm trying to like learn more about like Vietnam and like the socialism there. Some Plan A people shared a YouTuber named Luna Oi and she like talks about socialism. With Vietnam, like being able to like successfully create a uh, effective test kit for coronavirus and being able to manage the pandemic. Vietnam is like has like a certain advantage in terms of trade and economics because since China and the US like have some sort of like trade war going on, Vietnam is, is kind of like at this advanta- ad- advantageous point where they can produce things for the US and kind of have like that economic leverage, which I think is understated during this pandemic, which is like super awesome. A lot of test kit production for the U.S. is happening in the in Vietnam right now. It's probably happening. Uh, they're in the uh, process of manufacturing these test kits. They're willing to give it for free to other countries. I really hope they don't give it to the U.S. for free because we have the money for it. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking. That. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> Get your money, Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. So they, yeah, they're in the middle of uh, manufacturing the tests, and they're willing to share their technology with the rest of the world. So if that's not going to give Vietnam economic leverage, then I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, this is kind of an inflection point in global power dynamics between Asia and the West. I mean, Pan-Asia, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about just having all of the countries in Asia doing well. And most of the major players in the West in decline. Like, it seems to be a really uh, significant time right now. And for something like this to get made, it just shows how backwards the West is. 
Yeah, and you can slap a black face on that old, tired tradition, but it's still the same bullshit. And it shows how ossified and decrepit the <laughs> the white the western imagination is to me like it's uh it's much more of a reflection on america than on vietnam yeah i think this movie is bad for america uh like you said because like from an activism standpoint or like a liberation standpoint it doesn't do justice to the people who are actually quoted in the film like mlk and malcolm x because it's so narrowly focused superficially on just like showing black faces rather than the actual critiques of um, imperialism and racism in America. If this film is meant to be some sort of like service to the Black Lives Matter and black representation right now, it's not doing a very good job of it, of speaking to the movement and, and what liberation actually looks like because it like looks down on anybody who's not American basically and looks down on socialism and it makes fun of it. Like it, it's very narrowly focused on the superficial meaning of liberation, which is just, oh, we want to be in a Hollywood film, but we're not going to examine how other countries have fought racism and imperialism abroad. And Spike Lee had the material right there. Like you said, he, he quoted all these figures, but he selectively quoted them or didn't dive deep. You know, like the movie ends with Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech. And I thought it was a pretty fitting metaphor for how the movie uses Vietnam and Vietnamese people as just the background. Beyond Vietnam is a speech about imperialism, but the movie ended just showing the part of the speech about how America will never be free until the descendants of its enslaved people are free. But for me, the most key parts of the speech are when Martin Luther King Jr. brought up how his own government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And when he made that connection, he realized that he can't just speak against the violence of the oppressed in the U.S. if he doesn't also speak to that violence done by the United States as well, everywhere. Yeah, it was strange how it ended with technically the Americans quote-unquote winning because they got the gold after killing some Vietnamese people and, you know, the French bad guy, spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, it still totally underestimates Vietnamese people and characters because the gold was originally from the American government to pay the Vietnamese who were helping the Americans. So in the end, it just seemed like another false victory that perpetuates that kind of narrative, you know, among other narratives that still won't die. Yeah. <laughs> that the ending scene of part of the donation going to a landmine organization, <laughs> like that was like textbook white savior, like poster, like this white woman in front of all these Vietnamese children and villagers. Yeah, I wish I had seen through that because, that, yeah, it was, was very unsatisfying. Yeah, it's like very easy to overlook. If I saw the film, I'd probably overlook it too. Like it's easy to overlook seeing a white face doing a good deed and not connecting it to white saviorism. I just want to like throw this in, but like my my partner is a uh, films for a nonprofit that shows like black youth going around uh, the city and like learning about different occupations and stuff. And it's called the Explorers Program. And he told me that he purposely doesn't include white faces, professionals, like talking about the explorers or whatever, so it doesn't come off as white savior. And he doesn't do it unless there's like a person of color to also appear. So so if there isn't a person of color, he just doesn't show any professional talking, which I thought was purposeful and like good. And it's like a easy thing to overlook. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great policy because the film showed the white saviors and it showed the Vietnamese as crippled and conquered by capitalism and still out of date. And that's really not the truth. Also, those Vietnamese gangsters would have just shot them down and taken the gold instead of like going on some speech about meat lie and giving the bloods opportunity to strike back. I know that's, that's a very typical like bad guy trope in a movie, right? <laughs> the villain going off on a speech that gives time for the hero to respond. Yeah, it kind of vindicated, you know, the, the main characters, the Americans, and it vindicated, you know, this French woman for her family's colonialism because of her quote-unquote do-gooder profession she's chosen. But it didn't, you know, vindicate the truths of history and the Vietnamese. Yeah, the white saviorship just allows white people to kind of define what racism is and define that, like, 
because they're doing some sort of good deed, they can't be complicit in racism and the structures of racism. So I, I feel like that was maybe like an unintentional purpose behind that French woman's character. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, what was Spike Lee thinking? You know, like, was it intentional that he made a white savior movie with some black faces to co-sign that? Or is he just like the anti-Vietnamese, anti-Asian racism just so below his radar that he just didn't even realize what he was doing? And I don't know which one is worse. Like, my question, like, to answer that question, like, I would also ask, like, does Spike Lee even recognize anti-Asian racism as, like, a legitimate form of racism? Yeah, exactly. My theory is that, like, someone wrote this script and it just happened to be, like, completed before the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement has been going on for some time now. Uh, I, I think Spike Lee just like had the script handed to him and he thought like, oh, let me make this film and put black faces on it because that'll get a lot of attention. And then that was the end of that. Yeah, some parts of the script were just kind of cringy, you know, like the introduction the French woman. My name is Hetty, like Hetty Lamar, like they're trying to do this Hollywood throwback connection to her. It just didn't come together. I mean, I would expect that from a lesser director who's not famous for how insightful he is on race. But like, this is Spike Lee, man. That's why it was so disappointing, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, if, if Spike Lee can't recognize anti-Asian racism, who the fuck can? Asians <laughs> and Asian Americans. So we need more of them <laughs> making movies. The thing is, he quoted people, he quoted black people who do. That's a good point. They're all dead. No, Angela Davis is alive. Asada oh, yeah, yeah. I had actually just um, reread Asada Shakur's biography recently, and maybe they just need to listen to more Black women, because in her biography, she talks a lot more, like, she makes that connection between domestic oppression and international oppression very pointedly, and, like, how, when that connection wasn't made by a lot of the Black leaders in the movements she was a part of, that was something that bothered her. Like, that was something she felt like people weren't educating themselves enough about. Yeah, there we go. Black women and women of color will recognize it more so than men of color, unfortunately. Why do you think that is? Being a double minority, you feel it from more all sides. And, you know, men are still men. They still have a lot more blind spots. Especially with, the, you know, a war movie. It's so, like, it's always so full of, like, machoism and, you know, this glorifying of warfare. That was all there in those beginning flashback scenes to the helicopter ride. Like, it had, like, the same, like... I don't know what the intention of that was, either to like parody that apocalypse now feeling, but for me, it just had the effect of glorifying that sort of action, war action. Yeah, it's still men going, no, we're better than you, we're better than other men, and we're better than um, people of color, look at our military might, we can have this white woman as a prize, or we can have this Vietnamese woman hanging around for 40 years waiting for us. So it's, it's not a very appetizing attitude overall. Yeah, but it seems like, you know, Malcolm X understood, and MLK did too. Yeah, right, yeah. Like, they, they were still men, but, you know, they made that connection. And it seems like there's less people in general able to make that connection now. And I have read some Black women writers who do talk about that. There's other writers who talk about that a lot. Like, like Danny Haifang, he talks, I mean, he's Vietnamese, but, like, there are definitely people who are able to recognize the connections between domestic and international U.S. imperialism. But it seems like the people with the biggest platforms, or rather the biggest platforms are pushing narratives that don't make that connection, and they're using people of color to do that. Or I don't know if this is organic or if, you know, there's like some big conspiracy, but it just seems like different issues are highly siloed so that it would be hard for somebody just looking at one issue to make that connection by themselves unless they were highly informed and probably, you know, like socialist minded to begin with. You know, what does that say about Asians for Black Lives or something like that? Because if this is the culmination, like, what are what are Asians fighting for in this? What are Asian Americans fighting for? Just more, more col colonization narratives? Like, I think that's bullshit. 
I think you even you see it with the protests now that a lot of energy is already dissipating. There's a lot of co-opting. Even from the very beginning, as soon as calls for abolition and defunding the police came out, then you had the eight can't wait campaign come onto the scene almost immediately. So, you know, we want to push these protests and demonstrations into this bigger picture and connect and making that connection. But there are a lot of forces that are trying to pull it back from where it even is in the first place. I, th- you know, I think there are a lot of people, part of the BLM, BLM movement, that that does make this recognition. But then there, there are all these Spike Lees who are kind of diluting it, or like trying to pull it back, or not letting it move forward. I mean, in twenty twenty, yeah, there's been so much hate crime towards um, both groups um, against you know Black Americans and Asian Americans because of the coronavirus. I mean, not that racism against both groups just recently started; it's been going on forever. But you know, more has made the news in in twenty twenty. So there needs to be, I think, more of a, a joint effort in in recognizing and helping each other. That all kind of aligns with what I've been thinking about, like, like how do we build? coalition between um, different races. And it's just like, I've had a hard time engaging in conversations about it with other Asian Americans, because I I want to highlight the fact that crimes against Asians are still a huge issue, not as a way to detract from BLM, but to talk about how like the fight against racism can't just be like a one-sided thing where we only talk about Black Lives Matter. We also have to defend ourselves as Asian Americans when it, when it comes to the issue of race. And every time I, I bring it up, uh, maybe I could be doing it better, but every time I bring this issue up about like, why, why aren't you Asians like also being vocal about the violence against Asians if you're so vocal about Asian anti-Blackness? I always get called out for being anti-Black and called out for detracting from BLM when I'm not trying to be. And I try to have like a meaningful or a genuous, a, a genuine engagement in the conversation saying that I do support Black Lives Matter. But it, it the conversation doesn't go is stay shallow. It doesn't it doesn't go more in depth. So I feel like this movie reflects the struggle that I've been having with, which is like what's most important at this moment in time is like only black representation and only Black Lives Matter when I feel like the whole issue of racism is so much larger than that. And I, I feel like, you know, like real activists are actually uh, who are on the ground are doing a good job, like making connections between the American war machine and incarceration at home domestically. But I just feel like mainstream wise, people don't make that connection like between our own oppression, like Asian oppression and also black oppression because they don't see they only see Asians as like being privileged. Yeah. Wait, who is calling you out? Who's calling you anti-black? <laughs> people probably aren't explicitly calling me anti-black but they I, i've had a friend of mine an asian american guy like basically say like oh what you're saying right now is anti-black because he thought i was detracting from black lives matter i feel like sometimes white people actually detract from blm when they make it about them and their feelings about like just discovering racism or trying to talk to their black friends and fish for compliments about how they're actually not racist they're one of the good people or when they're just trying to perform allyship and just say say the right things to sound anti-racist in the moment that's a detraction because they're making it about their personal feelings and taking the attention away from the issues But when you're talking about other racial issues, I think that is anti-racist. I think anything that's anti-racist is pro-Black. And it's usually East Asians, by the way, who who talk to me and tell me I'm anti-Black. I feel like as a Vietnamese American, I don't think of myself or Asians as having like a monolithic type of privilege the way other Asians do because my parents weren't, what is it, like F? one visas or whatever like they were refugees i don't know if any of you have like felt this way about like being vietnamese american but i feel like this like narrative of like asian privilege is like overplayed a little i understand that asians don't face the same type of racism as black people but they also face a certain type of racism that black people don't face yeah, I think you're touching upon differences between East Asians and Southeast Asians, too. Uh, just how Southeast Asians are regarded as, probably brought this up before, like Ali Wong said, is our jungle Asians. 
versus fancy Asians. So <laughs> there's a whole difference in, in being viewed differently within your own minority. In East Asian is policing you by calling you anti-black. That's just so messed up. Like when you're talking about, you know, your own issues, it's like, mind your own fucking business. <laughs> yeah. He was a little bit aggressive. Like when I was, when I had a, like a post on Facebook, I tried to reach out to him like privately and ask them, like, I wanted to like have like a private conversation rather than having online arguments. The ironic thing is like he was inserting himself into like my own space and trying to tell me that I'm wrong. And then when I try to reach out to him, he's like, I need space from you. Oh my God. Yeah. What a little fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has good intentions. I'm, I'm just hoping that like down the line, he's willing to discuss more about this whole issue. I think it's just that the language and framing around privilege just it's not the correct perspective and I think that's why we get into this like weird conversation about you know what's detracting when in this context it's not really about privilege but it's about like you said the different form it's like a, a different form of racism that Asians face whether it be Southeast Asian or South Asian or East Asian there is no narrative around the specific form of racism that Asians face, period. We only have the black-white framework to work with, and everybody's just kind of like superimposing their place in that spectrum. Yeah. In, in terms of colorism, as if like if you're lighter, then you're more like white and therefore have, you know, it's like if, if you're 80% white, then you have 80% of the white privilege, but it just doesn't work that way. That's exactly the case. It's not a spectrum. It's like, you know, we, we experience very different ways of being racialized. If you're East Asian or perceived as perceived as Chinese, that, that's a very different sort of this very Sinophobic specific anti-Chinese sentiment that exists. Whereas if you're South Asian, you're racialized as a potential terrorist. Those are two very different ways of experiencing racism. And putting it on this sort of privilege meter just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's like the police might not necessarily shoot you, but the government can deport you and then bomb the fuck out of your country until you're dead. Or you know, impose sanctions so that you and your family can't get the medicine that they need and die that way. It's not a linear scale of racism and privilege. It's more like Asians are on a different axis and everyone in the US, they can only see in two dimensions. They can't see this third dimension and we're on this third dimension of oppression and they just act like it's not even there. I think it's that a lot of people just don't want to admit and say out loud that the United States is a really fucked up, terrible country. That's the connecting factor. And I, I think people I think people don't want to admit that or like are connected to their patriotism or whatever, or like want to redeem the US somehow. Definitely a lot of people think that Asians and Asian Americans imagine the racism that happens to us, that they'll, they'll deny it happens at all. I don't know how this is in like bigger cities, but uh, I live in Nashville and, you know, living in the South, a lot of my Asian friends have experienced this in like their workplaces where they're not even seen as people of color by like their coworkers and such. I have a friend who's um, Pakistani and in a former workplace, she had the experience of being told, that, oh, you're basically white. I don't know if that's like a, a Southern thing or that's something that people experience everywhere in the U.S., but that's something that I've seen repeatedly as a pattern here. Yeah, I think it happens everywhere. I've, I've heard of it in California and New York, too. Like, yeah, you get denied um, <laughs> your own lived experience. Yeah, but it's all conditional. You get to be a part of the white group until you start talking about race, and then you're immediately ejected. There's even, I can't remember the name of this, like, principle, but, like, Asians face it worse if they do speak out because we're expected to be quiet and expected to not, you know, raise any trouble or speak out. And so when we do, it's almost like an overreaction to... Yeah, exactly. You become the difficult Asian if you have an opinion. Yeah, I read that, too. It was an article about a class that was discussing Frank Chin's work, and the students were saying that they felt really put off by how angry Frank Chin was. And it wasn't that he was angry, it was that they didn't expect an Asian person to have these issues and they didn't expect them to have the anger, even if they had issues. So it was that cognitive dissonance 
that they then projected onto him. And they used that to kind of dismiss it, to dismiss his issues and his anger based on their own prejudices. It was really fucked up, but it was enlightening to hear that. Yeah, I think Asians also perpetuate that stereotype of being submissive and yes man. I could just imagine like Asians not wanting to speak up about racism and that they see in the workplace specifically and like there's also that stereotype imposed on them of being like analytical, cold, unbiased or whatever. So, I could see that also like being a part of it. Yeah, I wonder what people think of us having an opinion about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're definitely releasing this as a free episode then. <laughs> Do you guys have any last thoughts? I have more of a frivolous question that, again, kind of buys into stereotypical Asian narratives. I was wondering, when you, when you watch this movie, the end, the um, Vietnamese woman, you know, she says to her daughter, Michonne, Mia Yukon, which means I love you. A lot of Vietnamese people and a lot of Asian people in general say, like, my parents would never, never directly tell me that they love me. Did that stand out to you at all? Like, is that something that made you think, my parents would never say that to me? Because <laughs> my parents never would have. It's interesting. Say, I've never heard that those exact words from my mom. I always interpret the word eel as a door <laughs> in, in a kind of obsessive way. But like, tung is love in Vietnamese. Yeah, tung. No, my parents would have never used those words. <laughs> they, they express their love in other ways. So I feel like... Yeah someone non-Vietnamese wrote that. Yeah. My parents actually now, now they, they will tell say in English, I love you. But when I was a kid, I never heard that. I feel like I've, I heard a lot of people say that. Same with mine. Like my mom will text me that a lot. And my dad will say love dad, you know, in emails, but they will never actually say it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I don't mind. Like I know how they feel. It's not like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like just just because they don't say it, they don't feel it. I, I don't really care if they ever say it because I know that they do. Yeah, that, that whole line of dialogue seemed a bit put upon. You know, it wasn't quite nuanced. I guess I was just disappointed just from reading the reviews of the film. I feel like maybe Viet Thanh Nguyen with his kind of like righteous anger will maybe do something about this and respond in a productive way. I'm not too like put down by it just because I don't really watch a lot of Spike Lee films, but it seems like there's been some productive dialogue among Vietnamese people about about this film. Do you have any recommendations? For films? Oh no, for like more Vietnamese dialogue on this? Uh, no, I haven't read much, but I think, Tok, I think you had an interesting article to share. Maybe we can link that in the episode notes. I think it's Vulture. It was from Vulture, exactly. Yeah, we've got the link. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think what Viet Thanh Nguyen says is great. And I heard that A24 is going to be making a movie about Vietnamese refugees based on that Ocean Vuong book. And Ocean's wonderful too, but they are both men of color. So I would also like, you know, more Vietnamese female input on Hollywood projects that are coming out. Well, when will your screenplay come out? Oh, we don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully within my lifetime. (laughs) Um, Like what's, what step is it? And is there any, anything we can do to help? Oh no, thank you for, you know, uh, mentioning it again and, and helping me put the word out. I've had it read and it's being read at various places, but nothing firm. But if there is anything firm, I would definitely let you know. Okay. Awesome. Keep us in the loop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that was another episode of Escape from Planning. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Music, anywhere there's podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and please consider donating to our Patreon. Have a great night. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thanks a lot. Oh, 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 oh,